The journey was long. The travelers weary. They had endured hardship, life-threatening danger. And here on the precipice of all hopes and dreams, they must walk a long, foreboding hall whose end was the, the vaulted sanctum of the unknown. Horrifyingly beautiful was the billowing smoke rising from the fire toward the soaring heights of the vast expanse. And then there was that ominous, chest-quivering voice which greeted them like a thunder-clapping storm. The image before them was bright and terrible. Dazzling and beautiful, yet somehow translucent in appearance. And just when it seemed all too frightening, all too magnificent to endure, off to the side, a little dog pulled back the curtain to reveal the old man pulling levers and pushing buttons, talking into a microphone, the great and powerful Oz, not so great after all. We've had experiences like that, haven't we? We prop people up. Examples of human strength, of intelligence, of morality, of integrity, of authenticity. That's a great buzzword today, right? Only to discover that they aren't quite what we built them up to be. We see that in movie stars. We see that in religious leaders. We've seen it in great athletes. We've seen it in CEOs of enormous organizations, and certainly we've seen it in politicians. Who can you trust? Who do you look to? We long to see strong, honest, authentic, merciful, wise leaders take office. We want to see people who are a, a cut above the rest, who have integrity, who have honor, who've proven themselves, they have great track records, and they have a history of sacrificial service. And when you don't see that, it's, it's deflating. It's disheartening. It's, it's discouraging. It's exasperating. And sometimes it's even infuriating. Where do you turn to? Who do you trust? Who can you look up to when everyone else has let you down? We're not the only ones who have had that experience, that, that disappointing experience with leadership. Second Chronicles 26 tells a tale, a tragic tale, a tale of disappointment. It's a tale of a man who took his father's throne at the ripe old age of 16. And we're told that what he did was right in the eyes of the Lord. For 52 years, he led Israel. He built up their defenses. He led them successfully into battle. He brought them extended period of peace and blessing. Verse 15 says, his fame spread far. I mean, this guy stood out from all the other kings. He was a cut above. He, he was a man who was revered, trusted, loved by his people. But for King Uzziah, the good, the good days wouldn't last. 
I'm going to pick it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. You, you don't have to turn there. This is kind of a precursor to our main passage in Isaiah 6 today. But just listen, Isaiah, or 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud. Proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out from the sanctuary, for you've done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord." Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he, he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper, to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. The king was powerful. He was honorable. He was a God-fearing man. He thought that he and God were good, that they were cool, but apparently he forgot that there's one thing that you do not do, no matter how powerful you have become or how much blessing you have experienced. You don't disregard the holiness of God. There were very explicit, very clear, very strict rules that God had laid down for how He was to be worshipped. For who could enter into that sacred, that holy place where God had come to dwell among His people. And King Uzziah found out the hard way. Found out the hard way how foolish it is to put God to the test. It's tragic. The death of Uzziah, it left a vacuum in Israel's leadership. The man who the people had grown to love was gone. He's gone. Who would they look to now? It was in that same year that another man, a man of God, came face to face with the answer. He writes in Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What an awesome and magnificent experience that must have been. I mean, to find yourself in the temple, that's a magnificent experience in and of itself. An enormous chamber, extravagantly appointed with the finest gold from floor to ceiling. It must have been awe-inspiring. But to have had your eyes opened 
to see the majesty of God Himself enthroned in glory. To, to try to take in the enormity of this robe coming out from underneath the throne and testifying to its wearer's greatness as it folded over again and again and consumed that space. To behold the brilliant and powerful six-winged angels that were hovering like helicopters on either side. To hear them calling out in an earthquake-inducing and smoke-conjuring declaration. It must have been a completely overwhelming and terrifyingly wonderful moment. And what was it they were calling out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. No one explains this better than theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul. In his book, Holiness of God, he explains the tremendous significance of the repetition we see here. To repeat a word one time, it's a literary device, and it was employed by the ancients as a way to add emphasis. We have different ways that we add emphasis when, when we write. Sometimes we use italics, sometimes we use quotation marks or parentheses or all caps, one of the ways that they added emphasis was to repeat words. Like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. By repeating that word, he's making it very clear. What he's about to say is very important. But you know, it's one thing to see a word repeated in the Bible once. But when you see a word repeated again and again and again, you three, see three successions of that word, you know that whatever is going to be said is of the utmost, the most extreme and absolute significance. R.C. Sproul writes this, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he's merely holy, and, or even holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he's holy, 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 that the whole earth is filled, is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That's pretty dramatic, right? And, and, and if this is the scene that we experienced on Sunday mornings in our churches here in America, man, I guarantee you, there wouldn't be a napper among us, right? We would be totally attentive to what was going on. Inanimate, unhearing doorposts and thresholds, they start quaking. Amazing. The mention of the reality of God's holiness, it's that powerful. Well, if this aspect of God, this attribute of God is, is that significant to be re repeated three times, we should probably know what it means. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the word holy, it means separate, or it means set apart. So to say that God is holy is to say that He is separate from everything else. He's transcendent. He's above us. He's beyond us. He's, he's altogether distinct from us. 
As Sproul wrote, this characteristic, it's, it's on a different level than the other characteristics of God. There's something about God's holiness that's emphasized to a greater degree than God's mercy or God's justice. The reason is simply this. Holiness is a, is a general, overarching characteristic which denotes the absolute and unique perfection of all of God's attributes. It describes them all. In other words, the word holy is what lets us know that every aspect of God, His justice, His mercy, His wrath, is completely, totally superior to anything else in existence. You know, holiness means one thing when you're, when you're talking about things, and it means another thing when you're talking about God. I could say that my toothbrush is holy. It's holy. It's set apart from all the other toothbrushes, and it's set apart to me. It's just for me. But you know what? There are limits to my toothbrush's sanctity. <laughs> There's limits to its holiness, right? I mean, it's totally obvious. It's, it's separate insofar as I keep it in a particular place, but you know what? It's under the same roof as a lot of other stuff. It's even in the same room of, of, of certain things. It's even on the same shelf of other toothbrushes in our house. And it's not a separate nature either, either is it? I mean, my toothbrush, it was, it was made by people, probably in a factory, and, it, and even the stuff that it's made of is similar to, if not exactly the same as other toothbrushes. It's, it's not that unique. It's unique in that it's mine, but not unique beyond that. So when I say that my toothbrush is holy, that holiness is limited. It's limited by nature. It's limited by location. It's limited by purpose. I can tell you exactly what it means and point out precise degree and manner with which it is separate from other things. And I can tell you what it's made of, its proximity, and what it's for. I can tell you what it's set apart from and what it's set apart to. You know, the Bible lists a lot of different things that are holy. A lot. There's holy ground. There's holy assemblies. There's holy men, holy nations, holy scriptures, holy hands, a holy kiss. Almost anything can become holy if it's set apart from the common and devoted to God. But there's a difference when we use the term holy for things and when we use it to refer to God. When we apply the word holy to God, we can say what it's set apart from. But if we try to wrap our heads around the degree and the distinction, we quickly run out of words. We have a hard time going there. We can't go there. How distinct is God from His creation? Well, He's infinitely distinct. If we try to talk about how good God is, like Rick did so well last week, we have a hard time beyond the examples that God's Word gives us, the stories, the pictures of His goodness in time and space, what He says about it. We could talk about the beauty of creation. We could point to His patience with rebellious people. We can even talk about the unfathomable beauty of the cross. But we can't put His goodness on any type of scale. We can't use any type of measuring instrument against it. Because God Himself is the perfect and infinite standard 
of his goodness. He's the scale, and he's limitless. So how do you measure that? He says in Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, and I'm the end, says the Lord God, who is, who was stretching back into eternity, and who is to come stretching forward into eternity. If I ask how utterly different and superior God is from the rest of his creation, I'm going to embark on an unending journey. It's never going to end. The word holiness, when applied to God, it becomes a trajectory word. It's, like, it's kind of like a vehicle that takes us toward the spectacular otherness of God, which words will never fully describe. If we went to warp speed in search of all the end of all His perfections, all His distinctiveness from us, we'd never get there. We'd never get there. That's what holiness does. It points us to the ultimate supremacy that is found in God alone. But by, by saying God is holy doesn't mean that we can in any way ever understand the measure of God's supremacy. We can't. And that's what Paul is wrestling with in his prayers for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 3.18, he says that he bows his knees before God the Father, that they, the Ephesians, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He's praying that they come to know the awesome extent of God's love for them, and at the same time, acknowledging they're never going to completely know it, because it's impossible. English theologian John Stott wrote of this passage, Christ's love is as unknowable as the riches, his riches are unsearchable, which he speaks of in verse 8 of that same passage. Doubtless, we shall spend eternity exploring his inexhaustible riches of grace and love. We're familiar with the Supreme Court. Some of us wish we weren't. We're also familiar with the Burrito Supreme. Again, some of us wish we weren't. How supreme is God? He's God supreme. Well, how supreme is God supreme? Well, it's infinitely supreme. You know, two is greater than one. Two hundred is a lot greater than one. Two trillion is way greater than one. But how far removed is the highest number possible from the number one? You can't say. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And you could add a lot more holies behind that, but it really doesn't make any difference at this point. He's the kind of holy that we'll never fully be able to wrap our brains around. The kind of holy that even angelic beings who have been designed to exist in His presence, they have to cover their faces in the midst of its brilliance and beauty. It's the kind of holy that's very mention causes the earth to shake and smoke to billow. When Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2-2, she was dead on. There's none like you. There's none 
holy like the Lord, she says. There is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. And God says in Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. The answer is no one. You can't. You can't compare anyone to God. I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, says Hosea 11, 9. He's not the wrinkled old wannabe wizard hiding out behind a curtain and pulling levers and pushing buttons, speaking into a microphone that's changing his voice to strike awe in the sight of others, but putting on some kind of show. He's the real deal. He's, he's holy in the most extreme sense of the word, and he's holy through and through. Who do you turn to? Who do you trust? Who do you look up to when all others let you down? You turn to the Holy One. You acknowledge the One who's superior to all others. Unlike other kings, the Holy One is absolutely unique. Unlike other leaders, He's utterly perfect, unwaveringly constant. He's the One you turn to. He's the one all of us should have been turning to all along. Like that pearl that is so beautiful and you recognize it is so valuable. You, you go out and you sell everything that you have because you must have that pearl. He's like, he's like the one you, you gladly cast off everything else to gain. Or do you? When Isaiah found himself in the presence of this holy God, you might think that he would have been completely overwhelmed with joy. This was Israel's real hope. It wasn't Uzziah all along. This was the source of their blessing, not that king. This was a cause for celebration, right? Jump to your feet, lift your hands, strike the harp, join the chorus, for he is great and worthy to be praised. But we don't see a praise team tuning up. And we don't see a man who is amped and ready to worship with all his might. We actually see quite the opposite. Isaiah 6, verse 3. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said... Woe is me, for I, am a man, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Where you might expect to hear a shout of praise, a hearty amen, the first words that escape Isaiah's lips are, Woe is me. As he's confronted with the holiness of God, he can't do anything else but declare a curse upon himself. It's the same curse that has been used throughout the Old Testament. Jesus even used it to declare uh, judgment on religious leaders. In Matthew 23, 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This wasn't a word that you used just to say, Shame on you, that wasn't very nice. 
You should probably apologize for that. This was the word you used when you said, you are dead. It was a pronouncement of doom. Prophets were known to speak woe on behalf of God as they declared doom on cities, on entire nations, even doom on individuals. Woe to you, O Moab. You are undone, O people of Shemosh. That's Numbers 21-29. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Zephaniah 2-5. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. A pronouncement of woe is a terrible thing. And here we see Isaiah pronouncing it on himself. Woe is me, he says. I'm lost. Other translations translate that, that, that last word there, they translate it ruined or undone. What he's actually saying here is that his entire existence is being torn apart. It's tearing at the seams. It's completely unraveling. Whatever cohesion, whatever feeling of put-togetherness he experienced from walking around with other imperfect people, and there were plenty who weren't as uh, good as Isaiah was, at that moment everything was destroyed. And remember, this is a prophet of God. He's not just one of the crowd. Isaiah was cut above. People looked up to him. He was respected. He was admired. One author says that he was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. And instantly, every ounce of self-esteem, every molecule of pride went up with the smoke that filled the room. It was a man who was completely shattered, disintegrating there on the temple floor. Well, why? Because this is what happens when you encounter the Holy One. This is what happens. When the curtain was pulled back and the wizard was exposed for, for who he really was, Dorothy and the Tin Man and the rest of the gang, they just breathed a sigh of relief. This guy isn't nearly as intimidating as we thought he was going to be. When the veil is lifted in the temple to expose the Holy One, Isaiah is completely wrecked. The holiness of God, it exposes what is unholy. The revelation of His limitless perfection, absolute purity, it cuts right through our feeble attempts at goodness and our sinfulness just lies completely naked before Him. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who, uh, to whom we must give an account. He not only sees everything that we do, even the thoughts inside, even the motives of our hearts, but His holiness also exposes us for who we really are. When you experience the smallest amount of His holiness, that reality, it hits you how insignificant you are, how powerless you are, and, and all the trophies of the good deeds that you have, you've been holding on to in your mind, 
those trophies are shown for what they really are. And Isaiah 64 describes that. Verse 6, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's something that you wouldn't even bother washing. You toss it or you burn it. We like to think that God will overlook our offenses, just like we do for other people. I mean, you're good people, right? You, you, some, you have people offend you all the time on the streets of Orange County, on the freeways. They offend you, and you go, oh, take a deep breath, okay. I'm not going to rear-end them this time, right? We forgive people. It's no big deal. We'll sometimes turn a blind eye when people do something wrong. Deep down inside, we say to ourselves, well, nobody's perfect. Who am I to judge? I've done plenty worse. And in a way, we're right. We're totally right. The stains on our track record are undeniable. They might, might not be made public, but we sure know what they are. And we're no better than anyone else. And you know, when it comes to the, the stains in our lives, we tend to look at them with, uh, with rose-colored glasses, right? And we say, well, you know, it's really not that bad compared to... Well, you know, the, the things that are really... The real sin, that's more... We label that crime. And those are the people who were locked up, right? Not me. And when, when I tend to think of myself, I, I think of myself in, in terms of more like, well, I have, I have some defects. I, I make mistakes. I, I have infirmities. It's, it's really a sickness, don't you know? It's, I, I'm, you know, I really just can't, I can't help it. And why, we like to think that God is a little like us. I certainly wouldn't want to condemn others for the little white lie. Why would, why would God do that? Well, I certainly don't want to believe in a God like that. But the reality is, He's not like us. He's totally distinct from us. There's not even the slightest hint of a blemish on his track record. His morality is totally superior to our own. And in light of holy righteousness, even the slightest offense it can't go unnoticed. And it can't be tolerated. God says in Psalm 50, verse 21, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. I'm not like you at all. You thought I was like you, but I'm not. Proverbs 15, 26 says, Even the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Nahum 1, 2, The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. And as the Holy One and the Creator of all things, the deal is He's totally justified in doing it. When Isaiah came face to face with the Holy One, he knew he was done for. The gig was up. The game was over. There was no fooling this God into thinking that he had anything good inside of him. He knew there had been words that came from his mouth at some point, at some time, that weren't honoring to God. And for that, he deserved the ultimate punishment. So Isaiah, he doesn't even wait for God to say, you're guilty. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm putting guilt on myself. I'm lost from a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Where do you turn? Where do you go? Who do you look to when others have let you down? You turn to the Holy One, right? You acknowledge the One who is superior to all others. Really? That's the one we're going to turn to? Because what we've seen from Isaiah 6 is that things aren't going so well for Isaiah. Turning to the Holy One looks a lot more like suicide than it does salvation. But there's more to Isaiah 6, thank God. More than crushing judgment. Something extraordinary happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. As I say, it completely falls to pieces on the floor, acknowledging the horror of his sin in the face of a holy God. Something incredible happens. One of the One of those angels, one of those creatures, one of those seraphim swings on down. And he he takes a burning coal in tongs. This coal is so hot that even the angel can't touch it. I love the way R.C. Sproul describes what happens here. He writes, the seraph pressed the white hot coal to the lips of the prophet and seared them. He says, the lips are one of the most sensitive parts of human flesh. The meeting point of the kiss. Here Isaiah felt the holy flame burning his mouth. The acrid smell of burning flesh filled his nostrils. But that sensation was dulled by the excruciating pain of the heat. This was severe mercy, a painful act of cleansing. Isaiah's wound was being cauterized, the dirt in his mouth being burned away. He was refined by holy fire. At the moment of abject terror, when Isaiah knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was done for, this holy God displays not only his supreme hatred of sin, but his supreme and absolutely astonishing mercy. Yes. The answer is yes. You should look to the Holy One. And though we're completely exposed in light of His limitless perfection, though we're children of wrath, fully deserving His righteous judgment, if we humbly acknowledge our sin before Him, we have nothing to fear. Because the One who is high and lifted up, the One who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy and dwells in the high and holy places, says that he also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The holiness of God, it extends mercy to those who acknowledge their sin and look to him for salvation. He loves those who see Himself in light of His holiness and humbly acknowledge their brokenness. He loves to revive hearts and breathe new life into their souls. And like He did for Isaiah, He loves to blot out their sin and wash them clean of all unrighteousness. Just like we're told in 1 John 1.9, if we confess, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just 
to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's in this forgiveness that we see another amazing picture of the holiness of God displayed. God's hatred for sin is so great. His holy justice is so absolute. And His mercy is so limitless that He sent Jesus for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What kind of being is this? What kind of entity is so committed to justice, so passionate about the sanctity of his own name, so diametrically opposed to sin, and yet so merciful that he would spare the sinful and at the same time punish the sin on his own son? The one who is holy, holy, holy does this. And in Jesus, we really see the manifestation of holiness. It's love come down. It's God with us. We see the holiness of God coming to dwell among us. When God's holiness, His complete otherness, complete separateness, His absolute and unique perfection is revealed in Jesus, we call that glory. John writes, John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh it dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, the Holy One is revealed. The Holy One is revealed. The living Word, God the Son, who existed with God the Father, of the same essence as the Father, before the creation of the world, He was revealed to the world as He took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the Holy One revealed to, to meet the Holy One's requirements. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. God can't leave sin against His holy character unavenged. It has to be paid. And like Isaiah's filthy mouth, our sins, they need to be dealt with. They can't just be overlooked. He can't just brush it aside and say, well, you know, it's okay. I've made, well, I haven't made any mistakes. I can't overlook this. And I'm totally just, absolutely, my justice is holy. And that's what Jesus does on our behalf as He offers Himself as a single, once and for all sacrifice, as Hebrews lets us know. 1 John 2, 2 says, He's the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who satisfied the Holy One's requirement for sin by His death on the cross. And He did it for a reason. He did it in order to make the unholy holy. As we humbly acknowledge our sin in light of God's holiness and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ that is a testimony to God's great mercy, He paid for our sins, that's when we're washed clean. Colossians 1.22 says, And you, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before Him. 
Jesus is the Holy One revealed to meet the Holy One's requirements in order to make the unholy holy. And He's done all of this so that they might expose, that they might expose and enjoy the glory of the Holy One forever. He's, he's done this really because of for, for 1 Peter 2.9. He's done this so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. God saves people so that they might point to His glory and His holiness. That's why we're here. And as we come and we worship together here in this place, we're all pointing each other to that. And we go, wow, this is amazing. Like, he did that for me? Really? He did that for you? Really? You? <laughs> yeah, he did. He is holy. He is amazing. If you're looking for a leader to come around who you can put your faith in, who you can trust, the word from this book is he's already here. He's already here. The one you're looking for is the holy one. Rick said last week, he's not safe. Not by a long shot. Even the slightest encounter with this Holy One will tear you apart. It'll expose every awful thing that lurks within you. He's not safe. But he's good. Loves, loves it when he sees us, in light of his holiness, acknowledge our sinfulness, our brokenness. He loves to revive our hearts and breathe new life into our souls. And like He did for Isaiah, for the sake of His great name, He loves to blot out sin and to wash us of all unrighteousness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Lord, we just... We run out of words. We completely run dry when we consider, even, even in this just feeble attempt to understand your holiness this morning, Lord, we are astonished at who you are and that someone like you would love us. Lord, we come before You a people who without Jesus Christ are completely broken. Like Isaiah, we have to declare woe on us. But Lord, thank You so much for Your marvelous, holy mercy that is just beyond our understanding in which You loved us while we were still sinners and sent Jesus Christ to die on that cross for us so that we might be washed clean, made holy, set apart to You, and be used for Your glory. Lord, that is astounding. It is amazing. And we stand in awe. Lord, if there are some here this morning who have not yet dealt with the reality of their own sin and acknowledged it before You, Lord, I pray that they would this morning come to grips with it and say, God, I need You. I need what You sent Jesus Christ to accomplish in my life. 
I've tried it on my own. I've tried to do good things. I've tried to stop doing the bad things. And I realize if Isaiah can't be holy enough, then neither can I. And I need you. I need Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. We love you. And may our lives, if they haven't been already from this day forward, be all about proclaiming the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into a marvelous light. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.